The summer uh, after I graduated college, I drove out to Phoenix for an internship, uh, which was arranged by a pastor friend uh, who would become a mentor to me. And I had been following Jesus for about two years by this point, and I just wasn't sure if I was feeling a call to ministry as much as I loved the scriptures and as much as I was experiencing the goodness of the Lord and an absolute change in my life. Um, so I went out there to explore a bit. That's what the summer of 99 was about for me. Um, I had graduated with a bachelor's degree in English, which meant I could teach English or work at a library or a bookstore or do something mostly unrelated to the study of English and literature, like most of my fellow English majors. You know who you are. So I headed to the desert and for two and a half months, I turned out to be the unpaid interim youth pastor for a pretty sizable church. On the weekdays, I worked light construction from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. because the angry summer sun in the Sonoran Desert, um, it comes up really early. And then in the afternoons and some evenings, I planned and hosted youth gatherings, I did some menial things around the church, or I tagged along with one of the pastors. I taught the Teed Sunday School class every week. I went to my first Alpha course that summer as well, and can you believe it? They were still using VHS tapes. <laughs> when the summer wrapped up, I had a uh, sort of farewell lunch with Ed, who was the lead pastor, and his associate uh, just to discuss my future and what they were thinking about ministry. I remember that we had fajitas for lunch, but I don't remember the associate pastor's name. Uh, I only remember him as the guy who told me that he didn't think that I was suited for ministry because of the dysfunction in my family, uh, my family of origin, particularly the liabilities of having an addict for a father. It was pretty discouraging, as you might imagine. Well, fair enough, I thought. I don't know about such things. I'll just marry Ashley in six months. She will no doubt complete me, and then I'll figure all the rest of that out later. So for the next two years, I managed the Timberland store. I worked in student development for my alma mater. I did end up working in a bookstore for a little bit, and I taught myself graphic design in the evenings. And eventually I thought that, okay, maybe I'll go into academia. I'll get a PhD, and I really like philosophy and ethics and comparative religion, so maybe I'll teach something like that in a state school from a Christian perspective or as a Christian. So we loaded up our meager belongings and we moved to the suburbs of Chicago uh, for grad school. Which begs the question, how did I get here? How did we get here? How is it that I've been a pastor for nearly 20 years, and half of them here at Village? Well, I mean, first of all, nothing short of God's breathtaking providence and grace. In the midst of, to go along with plenty of doubt, plenty of discouragement, lots of prayer, and a whole lot of grind. The Lord has done some really, really powerful things in our lives, but in many seasons, it's felt like he wasn't doing much of anything except just bringing the next day along with all that it requires, all that it provides, plenty of the mundane and plenty of the meh of life. And still other times, it felt only like living with a broken heart in a broken world. We all know what that feels like and those seasons are like. Sometimes, though, the hard stuff made the gospel that much more real to us. But other times it felt like the gospel was maybe slipping through our fingers. But I'll say this. There's one more really important thing about our journey, my journey, 
um, that's absolutely undeniable. And it's important on this particular Sunday, this Sunday after All Saints. Along the way, we have been surrounded by saints. Surrounded. Not perfect people who ooze spirituality and positivity, but real people making Jesus real and alive to us. Of course, there have been the difficult and really discouraging people like the fajita pastor. But honestly, they're grossly outnumbered by the people, the saints who have loved on us and loved with us and done the hard things for us and the hard things with us. Many of those saints are sitting here in this room. So the Feast for All Saints, or the Sunday after it, it gives us an opportunity, actually, to reflect on what it means to be a saint. What does that mean? And it includes asking ourselves again what it actually means to be a part of something far bigger than our own time and our own space and our own circumstances. Hello? (laughs) What it means actually to live our lives with a purpose, with a meaning, with what we say in nerdy theological terms, with a telos, an end or a fulfillment, a purpose uh, toward which our tiny interwoven lives are nonetheless leading. They're leading somewhere. What is that? What's going on? What are our lives connected to? So here at All Saints, we do get a chance to remember specific people whose remarkable lives uniquely bless and uniquely challenge us as we follow Jesus. People who actually have saint in front of their first names. Heroes, if you will, but listen, not the bulletproof kind. Quite the opposite. On the one hand, think about this with me. On the one hand, it's encouraging to recall and to celebrate exemplary people of faith, people of courage, people of wisdom. It's healthy for us to do that, right? But on the other hand, it can be a little bit annoying. It can be annoying when it slips into idealism because we all know that they weren't perfect and to idealize anyone is fraught with all sorts of potential problems. And maybe if we think about ourselves as as modern people, maybe this is one of the blessings and the curses of modernism. We tend to want our unvarnished stories. We want the real thing, even if they hurt, which is both a blessing and a curse, maybe. My favorite saint and theologian is St. Augustine, as you probably know. I quote him a lot, but he was a quirky dude living in a strange time. Not everything he said was helpful or even right. That's okay. I like him better that way. I remember my, uh, one of my theology professors telling us a story about Mother Teresa, on the, uh, uh, about her life and um, her ministry on the occasions of when donated shoes were delivered to her convent in Calcutta, India. And as the story goes, when the shoes would arrive, she would go through all of the boxes, uh, all of the shoes, and she would find the worst most tattered and dirty shoes uh, that were included there. And she wanted that pair for herself, even if they weren't her size. She didn't want anyone else to have to wear those shoes, which, I mean, what a huge heart, right? But over the course of her life, she developed serious issues with her feet. Was God asking her to ruin her feet? 
for the sake of sainthood? Was it going to make her more of a saint? Probably not. It made her a human with good intentions and idiosyncrasies, like us, like you, and like me. The point being, I think it's actually, this is important, it's actually the imperfection and it's the humanity, the real humanity of saints that should inspire us. The people who do make notable and enormous sacrifices, who take massive risks or choose unthinkable paths for the sake of God and others. And yet they're still people that should really encourage us. They're still sinners. They can be weird and they can have real contradictions because they really are us and we are them. And that's good news because obviously no one in this room has a chance at all at being officially canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church. Zero chance. It's not going to happen. I don't even know if Anglicans do such things. Uh, Maybe I should ask someone. I don't know. Being canonized as a saint, it can often take centuries. The five official criteria are these. Holiness of life, miracles, evident signs of sanctity, martyrdom, and a significant following in life or after death. I'm a long way from most of those, right? And you probably are too. It's a pretty daunting list. And yet, what do we hear today in Paul's words to the Ephesians? It's such, so encouraging. We hear Paul saying these words to them in what might be the longest, most comma-laden sentence ever written, because St. Paul had some quirks too. He wrote this, and I want to read this again to you. And as we read it, I want want you to listen to what he desires for them, what he knows is true for them, and the way he sees them. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Your inheritance. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, comma, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's gushing about them, some people he hasn't even met, some people he's just heard of and their faith. For Paul, we are all saints for whom he is thankful, saints who need ever more wisdom and knowledge, saints who need a hope that is ever more refined and resilient. For Paul, sainthood was equal parts grace and aspiration. What he knew to be true of everyone who loves Jesus and calls him Lord, but also what he knew would be true in their experience, this gradual, lifelong, up-and-down journey of faith, hope, and love being worked out in our lives and in our communities and in the world as it really, really is. 
And we, we need to remember that Paul's letters were usually written to address some problems. Problems of saints trying to be saints with bodies like ours, in cultures like ours, and with other people like us trying to do the same thing. And realizing, let's be honest, how hard that really is and can be. But also how hard we should still labor to do it. How much it matters. Most importantly, it's the challenge of how much we absolutely depend on the Holy Spirit to help us do it. I love what a priest named Steve Grunau once wrote. He wrote this. He said, most saints will disappear into the mission of the church. Most of us will. In other words, most saints won't live at some pivotal intersection in history. They won't shift the culture or earn a broad platform or some kind of big, big following. Most won't be remembered for anything, even by their own great-grandchildren. It's kind of a bummer. Most of the churches that they worshiped in will cease to exist in a generation or two. Also a bummer. History will move forward in all its fits and starts. Empires will rise and fall around them. And fundamentally, their sainthood will be marked by what and whom they showed up for both on Sundays and Tuesdays. More likely in a small town than at some sort of cultural crossroads. And as with all the saints, their lives will be marked by some sacrifice. Some big ones, yeah, but mostly a lifetime of small ones, unglamorous ones. Just getting out of bed on Tuesday for the exhausting demands of love. Being patient with people you don't really like, if you're honest. Listening to you-know-who when she said more words in an hour than you hope to hear in a week. But being there for it. Giving a little more even when it feels like there's too little left. There will be some sacrifices along the way that we just didn't or couldn't make. But you know what? We learn from those two. Our failures are also sanctifying, sanctifying. They're making us more like Jesus or at least helping us appreciate all the more how singularly loving and patient and generous and honest and self-giving Jesus was. Our failures, understood rightly, should actually lead to greater worship. This God who loves us so relentlessly and who is so holy. If it's true that most saints will disappear into the mission of the church, then what St. Paul tells the struggling Colossians actually harmonizes with this. I find a lot of encouragement in this. He says that our lives really are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, he wrote, then you also will appear with him in glory. We're not a finished product and we are far from it. But the work will be complete. And who we are or who we will be is kept for us, hidden in Christ and with Christ. In these words, Paul is reminding them and us that our baptisms, that our, the baptismal life, it really is a kind of everyday self-emptying. It's a kind of martyrdom in micro. A life that sees glory and actually seeks glory in the humility of following a way that is not our own. It's not our own. It's a way that doesn't come naturally to us. And you know what? It probably never will. And that's the point of what God is doing in making us holy, in making us saints. 
On All Saints, we also revisit what are known as Jesus' Beatitudes. In worldly terms, the blessing of God, the favor of God, it's often construed in the categories that, that we apply, the categories of worldly success. Some reduce blessing to prosperity and wealth, talent and good looks, power and prestige, right? God's favor is evident, they say, in the absence of suffering or of struggle. But in the Beatitudes... And in his own ministry, Jesus upends these categories and these expectations. What does he do? He declares that the blessing and the favor of God are given not to those who end up with the most, but actually with those who end up with the least. Not to those whom the world esteems as successful, but to those who seem to the world to have failed. Not to those who have power, whom the world considers to be significant and influential, but to those who go mostly unnoticed, unappreciated. Those who not only disappear into history, but are often invisible even while they live within it. No, Jesus is not telling his disciples and he's not telling us or anyone to try to be poor or to try to be hungry or sad or persecuted as ends in themselves or as some kind of conditions for holiness or sainthood. But, but, With the woes he includes here, he is saying that our values and our lives and the lives that they produce, they do have significant consequences in the grand scheme of things, in the larger story. They truly are connected to something broader. And if we live as though wealth and comfort and acceptance are ends in themselves, that's all they will be and that's all we will have. They will be dead ends. So saints know Or let's be honest, saints are learning that the blessing of God far exceeds these things. Because as Paul tells the Ephesians in our reading today, the eyes of our hearts are being ever more enlightened to see and understand. We need to work from without, or really to work from within by the Spirit to see, to be enlightened, to understand that following Jesus through discouragement and grief, through scorn or the disapproval of our contemporaries, it's loss and suffering with an expiration date. It doesn't last. It doesn't define us. And in fact, Jesus is saying that one day it will dignify. I think here in the late modern West, we might not find this kind of promise, these upside-down ethics very personally compelling, except to maybe make us more social justice-minded, which is an important thing. But there's more to it for the church. There's more that we need to think about here in what Jesus is saying. And this is why we actually turn our attention to Revelation 7 on all saints. And let me read verse 13, uh, beginning verse 13 again. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John doesn't know. So the elder in this vision explains it to him. He said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We know as we read Revelation and, ha- and interpret it with the history of the church that there's a both and thing going on here. It both describes the immediate harrowing circumstances that the church was facing in John's day and 
It's a timeless word. It's describing the ongoing struggle to remain faithful and true in the face of persecution with the reward that awaits those who do. And so if we're honest, as people in the West who have a lot of things, empirically, we really don't suffer that much. This kind of talk, this kind of reflection can seem extreme and remote to us. We find ourselves more often here grappling with the failures of the church. And rightly so, there have been plenty. We're deeply critical, and it's not unwarranted in many cases. But often at the expense of seeing the church in the way that the church sees the church around the world. We too easily forget that the church is far more. We too easily forget to whom we belong. And you don't have to go back two millennia to find them. To find the relevance and the necessity of John's revelation of these words to the suffering saints who still live in the world on the same planet we live on, but not necessarily in the same world we do. Open Doors uh, U.S. is a ministry to the persecuted church around the world. They keep a watch list. They pay attention to where there is suffering for the church. And according to their watch list, in 2022, 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith. Most of them in sub-Saharan Africa. 2,110 churches have been attacked. One in seven Christians in the world faces intense persecution. If not every day, most of the time. That is more than 360 million people suffering for the name of Jesus in nations far different than ours. And here's the point that we need to remember on all saints. John's timeless vision, it might land on us far differently than those in, say, Nigeria who live in constant fear of murder and kidnapping at the hands of the Boko Haram. Well, on all saints, we're challenged we're challenged to remember that the church throughout history and in our world today can't rightfully be limited to our narrow experience or understanding of it. Even today, people are dying for Jesus while Christians in the West aren't so sure he's still worth living for. We forget today is about remembering. And that's not a guilt trip, friends. I mean, that, that is not how I roll, and you know that. It's just part of what it means to call ourselves disciples of Jesus. It's just the church Catholic that we say we believe in every time we say the creed together. It's everyone, everywhere, over all time. All saints. And that's a gift not only, uh, meant not only to bless, but it's to challenge us to challenge us beyond our reductive perspectives that discourage us from following Jesus and limit our hope. And that's the point I hope you'll hear me making today. The saints have not just been a gift in my life. The saints are a gift to us all. We're a gift meant for one another as we follow Jesus together. As we remember those who belong to us but who are following Jesus under far different circumstances than us. We're meant to be a part of them. And this table reminds us, as we receive the body and the blood of Jesus every Sunday, that it is the same body and blood of Jesus, both spiritually and mysteriously, that others around the world are brothers and sisters in Nigeria or in Iran or elsewhere are receiving, that we are partaking together with them because we belong together with them.
And if we're honest too, the truth is none of us knows what's ahead for us, what life and faithfulness are going to require from us personally or what it's going to require of Village Church. But because of all the saints, we do know, this is what we know, we know that we won't be the first or the last to follow Jesus through whatever life ends up bringing us. And because of all the saints, because of the Lord who lived and died as one of us and was raised for our rescue, the great news is we are not doing this alone. That is wonderful news. We need each other. All the saints. For one another, for all of us together. Lord, help us, just as Paul prayed, to be, to, to receive, to live into to ever grow in all of this knowledge and blessing and enlightenment and truth and power and hope and this inheritance that you have waiting for us, that even now we would live like people who expect it, who know that it is ours, not because of our saintliness, but Lord Jesus, because of your sacrifice and your gift to us. Make it more and more true and real to us, not only in our minds and as we reflect upon it or in our practices, but through one another for your sake and for your glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.